This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Charles Bach, author of Beautiful Children and Alice and Oliver. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in Harper's, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and Slate, among others. His novel, Alice and Oliver, tells the story of a young couple living in New York City and raising their baby daughter in the early 90s. Suddenly, Alice is diagnosed with cancer and in a hospital undergoing chemotherapy. The novel is based on Bach's real-life experience as his first wife died of leukemia, leaving Bach as the single parent of their young daughter. We began our interview talking about his novel and how Bach chose the names for his characters. It did need to be two names that could that worked well together and that, that, that felt right when you would say them and when someone would read them and it had a level of specificity to them. The title of the book was not Alice and Oliver while I was writing it. That title was kind of found and, and arrived upon afterwards. But like Alice, I did want a name that, that had a certain level of bounce and light to it. And then something that would go with it and that I could, could also work off. Even little things like figuring out that they both have vowel sounds and that those go together well was a happy realization. It is an important part of the book and then especially that it is important enough that it becomes the title and it, with time it was um, became apparent this really is their story and it uh, while it's a cancer book it is also very much a book about love and people doing the very very best they can in a an impossible situation and so yes this is one of those little things where names are so hard and so important and if you get one right then you then hey thank goodness one of the things that I noticed right away is that it has these really subtle switches in point of view yeah. between Alice and Oliver. And I wrote down in my notes, you know, very tight each time, claustrophobia of the illness as well as the intimacy. Does that make sense to you when you think about how you were trying to inhabit these points of view? Yeah, it does make sense. I think there's an urgency to the book. And I think one thing that did happen was this, the, your world becomes very small. It collapses in the sense that this is what's going on and not much else is going on. I remember, you know, Obama got elected in, two, in, in 08. In January of 09, Diana was ill, was, uh, was ill and had come home from her first bone marrow transplant. We lived in a small apartment in off Gramercy Park, which is 10 blocks from Union Square, which is one of the places in New York City where people came and celebrated his election. We couldn't go to that. You know, you knew it was happening, but our, and, and it was, you know, in this amazing thing, because after the eight years of Bush and everyone's just like, oh, dear God, we want something else. Couldn't celebrate it. Occupy Wall Street was happening. It might have been happening on another planet because there was no way of going to it because the world gets so much smaller. Everything is about trying to help this person survive and trying to take care of you know, the baby and trying to deal with the bills and all of that. And I wanted the novel to have that, to have that sense of you're in it, and, and it is that intense. I wouldn't know if claustrophobic 
would be the word I would have thought, but I did want that intensity. And it does probably create this small, probably, yeah, maybe there's a claustrophobia that results from it because the whole world becomes so much smaller. And I, and that includes the points of view switching because I did want a reader, you know, first page or two pages or four pages to have those jarring, each paragraph might switch, move forward in time in the, in the first couple of, of pages. Then there's a white space and it, and it shifts into someone else's head and it's up to the reader to get it. But once the reader gets it and understands the book works on these terms, then the reader is more fully in the hope with any luck. The effect is it puts you more fully in the book and more fully in this, in this experience. So yeah, I, I, I think what you're saying makes total sense. I have no idea what kind of person you were before this, and I don't really know what kind of person you are after this. Right. But sort of knowing the limitations of not being able to go participate in the greater culture that's happening around us, do you feel like it made you more compassionate, even towards maybe that person that cuts you off in traffic, just realizing how much you don't know about people's inner lives? I do feel a lot of compassion and, and find myself to be an empathetic person. Uh, I think this experience, especially when I was in mourning and, and had a lot of grief and, and had a lot of anger, you know, it also brought forth a lot of my understanding of just how unjust the world can be. And sometimes that can lead to an impatience with um, someone in front of me counting out $50 in pennies so they can buy gumballs. You know, that's something that could drive me nuts. You go through this and either probably it can break you and make a person bitter and hard towards the world. And this did not do that. I, I think it made me something else, but not bitter and broken towards the world. Even as I also, you know, understand that there are some things that are where you can understand why it breaks someone. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Charles Bach, author of the novel Alice and Oliver. Our interview was recorded via Skype. Because you have such close points of view with Alice and Oliver that switch so often, you inhabited the voices so closely. And I don't just mean intimately, but I mean shifting within paragraphs on the same page. Did that flow for you, or did you have to mentally make shifts as you went between voices? Uh, that's an interesting, good question. I think one of the things that happens is, is that as you work on a book, you really come to know characters and know their voices, hopefully if the character is working. And then you get access to it easier and easier. Sometimes I, it would be hard. I think... Now, at the end of a section, when you need the white space and then you're starting a new section and you're going into someone else's head, sometimes there really is a letdown and there is a mental readjustment and recalibration that has to take place so that you can then move into this other person's head. Um, but I, I felt like I understood them or knew them pretty well fairly early in the novel or fairly early in a later draft in an early draft I, my editor read it and I had given and Oliver had more money and he and was from someone who had like uh, uh, where 
his family had a, um, what, what's it called, a trust fund. And the family money that they were going through, he was burning through in a, a, it was his trust fund. And an edit, my editor read it and said, I do not, I do not think he, he comes from money. I just don't buy it. And when I went home, I didn't buy, I understood, yeah, he doesn't because he's much more of a scrapper and he's much more combative in a way of someone who isn't used to being entitled and who, who, who doesn't just think, oh, there's a bill, let's pay it, you know, but who kind of scraps over it. And, um, and I think that that helped me inhabit his voice even more fully. And then that made it easier. But yeah, sometimes you do need a little, sometimes you do need a little shift and need a break or a day to recalibrate for a, a, a different perspective. Sometimes you need more than a day for it. At one point, the stress is mounting. Alice is sick. Oliver wants to take care of her. The bills are increasing. They're taking care of their baby. And they have a difference of opinion or an argument. And Alice says to Oliver, and I love this line, you can be right or we can be married. Yeah. And she finishes it with, and I really need to be married to you right now. Well, in my experience, my limited experience in the world, there's those moments in a relationship where you reach those, you reach those points where, are you, am I right? Or are we going to compromise and find a way to get past this problem? Or is each of us going to insist on our rightness? My experience always was and always has been that if you choose, I need to be right, there's certain points where you, that line, once you cross it, you can't uncross it. You can later try and, 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 and make up or this or that, but that, that's how lines in the sand get crossed that end relationships. And that line, when she says that to him, even though on that subject, he doesn't know how right he is, but he, he capitulates. He understands the gravity of the situation and he chooses love. He chooses his wife. He choose, and he sits down and they figure out what's going on. I think it was just very important because I think people who weren't so in love or maybe as evolved as she was, she was very into Buddhism and things like that and seemed to take things in a very graceful way, but that either lesser evolved or lesser connected people would not even be aware enough to say something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, if you're out there and you're a writing student and you're, you made it to this part of the, the, the podcast, you will never go wrong by making the, the, the main characters and central people you're dealing with, making them smart and giving them some emotional awareness. That doesn't mean they have to be emotionally aware of everything or that they don't have blind spots or that they're not pigheaded, but it gives you range and it gives you real abilities with your characters. It was a joy to write her, to write someone who was smart and plugged in and I would consult I have a friend who is a Buddhist monk and every now and then I would check in with him about a scene or a scene or two or a conversation that was happening or a problem that that was taking place and see get a thought or two from him and it's a joy because then when you get someone who is evolved and who does have some emotional complexity and who can deal with stuff do they get breaking points too? And then it, that's more interesting also. 
because they have more going on. So what does it take to break them? And then what happens because now suddenly all bets are off because now you've passed them into a different place. I did enjoy having her be a, a fairly evolved person who also had certain things that she could not get past or she could not figure out. And there's another line earlier where Oliver is with his friend Ruggles. Yeah. And Ruggles, they're having a talk. I, th- I think they're at a bar. And basically Ruggles is saying, like, you're still the poor son of a bitch who has to be strong through all this. You have yeah. to strap up and take care of your family. You're the one carrying the burden. It's BS and it sure ain't fair, but that's the shitty business of being a man. Can you talk about that? Every now and then I would have uh, friends and we would talk and then I would have to go back to whatever I had to do. Some friend or someone, maybe not even a friend, it could have been my shrink, at some point did say to me, look, this isn't fair, what's happening. And you need to hear that it's not fair. It's tremendously gratifying to have someone say, just this sucks and it's not fair. And, and a lot of times friends don't know to say that or don't know how to say it. And then I kind of, exa- then I kind of took it and did whatever I, I do with things. Uh, and that, that, at some point, I'm sure I probably was like, this, this is shit. I mean, I'm sure like every day, 500 times a day in the experience. And then that morphed into somehow a friend saying to him, this is the shitty business of being a man. I've never went to war and I didn't, I'm not someone who was drafted or volunteered to fight in Iraq, which is a form of masculinity and a form, or if you're a man, it's a form of, of masculinity. And it's one of the ways we think of manliness is fighting, you know, is being in combat, but taking care of, of someone you love, whether you're a man or a woman, that is a, adulthood that is a form of it and uh and it's one of the highest things you can do and one of the most generous things you can do for another person is take care of them and it's also kind of thankless and uh i thought early some fairly early in the book it was important to stake the terms and to have it said and have it heard and just say yes this is what you've got this is what this guy is going through and this is his this is it. Both of these characters are doing their best. They love each other, and it's a pressure cooker. And her main business is just staying alive, which entails a lot. And he is left paying the bills and caring for the child and working and caring for Alice. They can't be intimate anymore, and he needs an outlet. So he decides to find a prostitute, and that's a secret from Alice at first. And then he tells her... And while it doesn't affect their day-to-day operations that much, it does cause a huge schism between them. Can you talk about the idea of doing this to your character? Oh, it's such a good, it's such a good question. And, it's, it, and you couldn't have phrased it any better, uh, the idea of doing this to your character. It's horrible to do this to your characters. We all have these books that we love and characters we love where they decide to do something and you're like, no, do not do that. I, I want the two of you together. I, I love the two of you. I want things to keep going well. Why are you doing that? That's part of the gig. I knew that I had to challenge their bond. And I knew that I wanted some kind of moral failure on his part. 
but also one where you could kind of understand what and why, even as you were shaking your head like, no. Newt Gingrich, in 1994, when the book takes place, his wife had cancer and he left his wife. He served her divorce papers in her hospital bed. How the heck can somebody do that? It's in unthinkable, right? But it's, it's so hard to watch someone you love to, to have their life threatened that way and to go, through, to go through serious cancer treatment. It's such a hard, scary thing. Now, you don't want someone who's the head of your goddamn Congress to fold that way, but you can understand how someone can just say, I can't do it anymore. We had friends who just couldn't visit relatives who couldn't step up the way that we would have loved for them to step up and be present. And that's not because they don't care, but because they just, there's something cracked. I got in my head, I would see these things and I would think about like, let's say, think about Gingrich and I was, would be there, you know, and be constantly there and be there. And at some point you just imagine, well, what answers would there be? Like what answers could there be? Or, or before the bone marrow uh, uh, transplant, yeah, they make you fill out a questionnaire. And one of the questions on the questionnaire was, have you ever seen a prostitute? Like, have you ever had sex with someone who's HIV? Have you ever seen a prostitute, Do you have IV drugs? And they're doing it because to figure out the level of risk in the system, because if it's too risky, they don't want to go through with this million dollar operation. I remember that the, que the prostitute question, I had my ears per per perked up and there was kind of like, well, what if someone said yes? And it was as simple as that, of this idea that when, and then when I started writing the novel or thinking about the novel and how to structure it and what things I could do to kind of create some breakdowns with, with Oliver, that question came back. And that's, that was the genesis. And I was like, oh, am I really going to do this? And then I was like, yeah, yeah I, I think I am. I think I am. Be with the idea being he would still care for her. He would still do everything he, he could for her. At a certain point, he, he would even admit it. Is he compromising? Is he, is he betraying her? And then that's morally interesting. That's kind of the genesis of where that betrayal kind of comes from. And because it's just, it's true that human beings have certain urges and they just don't go away because you're in the hospital and both characters um, feel that, you know, that desire to live pulses through all of us in all kinds of ways. When you look back on yourself and this character, Oliver, who probably has elements of you in him, do you look back and say, what a jerk I was or what a great job I did? How do you look at yourself now? That's a really interesting. Um, I was both. There were things I, I did the best I could. I couldn't have done any more. I'm at peace with that. I could be a, very difficult. There's a part of me that does not run from a confrontation. And, uh, and in fact, uh, I have this self-destructive part that makes them worse. One of the fun things of writing Oliver was, was amping up that part of him and making someone who will confront him like a, a healer if he thinks that they're a fraud and, and will get into it with people and that that created some comic joy. 
Yeah, I know this. I feel this way with the the writing of the book and with my my actions and during the years when Diana was ill, I did everything I could. I did the best of it I could, and sometimes I wasn't as kind as I wish I could have been, would have been. But it's so hard. The last thing anyone I could do is judge myself or or anyone for that kind of stressful situation. And I feel as far as the book goes, there might be some sentences that I might want to repunctuate or a paragraph where I might want to add a sentence or two to make something clearer. But I'm I, I'm very, very proud and in love with the book I wrote. I, I wish and would want every writer to feel as good about something they've done as I do about this book. And And then the next question then becomes, how do you continue to feel good about that? once it gets in the world and once it gets into the where you get a lot of press or you get less press than you want or you don't get the press you want how do you keep that feeling of connection with what you know you've done or what you the pride you feel in the work you've done and it's a hard question for every writer to face because the truth is maybe one percent of one percent gets the the love that they want for a book You know, and most of the time it doesn't happen that way. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Charles Bach, author of the novel Alice and Oliver. Our interview was recorded via Skype. Well, can you talk about a writer that influenced you, maybe read a passage from something that either influenced you any time in your career or for this book? Sure. And soon I realized that all these sounds were of one nature, that no other sound but these came from the streets of the transparent town with the woman at home and the men away. Reader, what I heard was but the melody of children at play, nothing but that. And so limpid was the air that within this vapor of blended voices, majestic and minute, remote and majestically near, frank and divinely enigmatic, one could hear now and then, as if released, an almost articulate spurt of vivid laughter, or the crack of a bat, or the clatter of a toy wagon. But it was all really too far for the eye to distinguish any movement in the lightly etched streets. I stood listening to the musical vibration from my lofty slope, to those flashing flashes of separate cries with a kind of demure murmur for background. And then I knew that the hopelessly poignant thing was not Lolita's absence from my side, but the absence of her voice from that concord. And why did you choose this? One, because just sentence by sentence, it's just ridiculously rich but more because it it shows and leads to this i want to say heart or this this bottom line base human morality in an the most amoral premise possible and because he has to reach it we love nabokov mostly you know the the flash is the sentences the language. We read him because he does things with language that have been uh, imitated, 
but that it, it took it to a, a place of precision that we did just unparalleled, but that his also over a larger structural moral mind in this novel and where he ha takes it to, where that there's a point where it's all going to come together so clearly that that was a, has been a guiding post for me in a lot of ways in how I think of fiction. Can you read something that you wrote? I have a, a passage. This takes place in the first, within the first 50 pages. It's at the point where Alice and Oliver are going to the New York hospital where she's going to be treated. They've made it back from the country hospital in New Hampshire. And um, now they're going to New York and they think it's just going to be a regular visit. Their first visit, very easy, a get to know you day, although it ends up being much more than that. And um, while they're walking, trying to find you know, the business office, Alice sees something and it triggers a memory. Her grip around the baby carriage handles tightened. Memories assaulted her now, visceral and consuming. The pungent liquid plastic odor of surgical gloves, the sensation of ice chips rattling around inside her mouth, a recollection so strong she could almost feel the ice against her teeth. In her mind's eye, she saw the postcard with the ballerina that Oliver had taped to the wall across from her bed. She remembered feeling so weak that the act of lying in bed was a chore, so weak that keeping her eyes open was itself exhausting, but also staring for what felt like long stretches, centering her thoughts on that gorgeous ballerina, her poise, her strength. Now Alice remembered the middle of the afternoon when she woke from a nap and her eyes focused and inside that hospital room in New Hampshire, she saw her best friend and her mother and Doe, each of them peaceful and asleep, slouched in a chair or lying on the fold-out bed. Alice remembered thinking that she had to watch them sleep. She had to appreciate the sight of these three astounding women. She had to stay in this moment and soak in this experience because she had no idea how many more times she might have it or if it would come her way again. I chose that because as it's, it moves through a couple of different emotions because it's intense and it's sweet and it's large and mortal. And then at the end of the day, there's terrified people who have one another. Where do you write? I wrote part of this book in a writing space in Union Square in Manhattan. I wrote a good part of it at a writing desk in my old apartment. My new apartment does not have a desk. And so sometimes I'm just on a couch and sometimes I'm in a, uh, at the kitchen table and I'm just wherever I can plop myself down in my laptop and not do huge damage to my back. That's usually where I write. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Oh, man, anywhere I can. <laughs> um, well, I, I love basketball. I also have a seven-year-old daughter. And so she being taking care of her takes me away from writing, you know, like, like just because I have, to, I, have to, I have to be with her. It demands my presence. She demands my presence. Um, I think of myself as a world-class procrastinator and feel that I can waste time on the internet 
in a way that they should pay me for because I'm so good at it. But I think those things are, are things that I probably do to get away from write, writing when I can. I, I, I exercise some and take walks when I'm able to. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? There's a couple of people, and it's not always the same person. My wife, Leslie Jameson, is a tremendous eye and someone that I'm always excited to show work to. I have a writing friend named uh, Matt Thomas, and sometimes I show him stuff. I would say those two are the, probably my two go-tos, but it changes, you know? Sometimes, it, it, sometimes you go through, I used to show it everything to Diana first, and then I would show it to my agent second. So And now that it's changed a little bit. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, like anyone else, with bitterness and, and vitriol? No, um, you know, it sucks. Uh, um, very early in my writing life, someone told me that you're going to be rejected and humiliated more than you ever know. And you just outlast them and you keep at it. And eventually you, you write something good and someone will want it. The truth is, is that um, it never gets easy, especially when you write stuff that you feel is very, very good or that you're very, very proud of. I wrote an essay about Diana's last days and it made it up to the final high levels of, of, of a certain publication. And then it, it, you know, and that, and it didn't run and, I'm just waiting to figure out what to do with it. And it's just hard to have it on the computer doing nothing. It's always hard to have work you're proud of that you, that you don't know what's going to happen to. I think my experience is the only answer is to find a new project and to be involved with it and to get excited about it. And it's not a fun answer, but... You know, they, they, tell, they tell shooters in basketball, you got to keep shooting. That just because you missed five in a row, you've got to take number six. You can't hesitate. And even in the, in the playoffs, in the, the climactic game uh, uh, between these two teams, Oklahoma City and Golden State, there was a guy who played however many games, and he wasn't known as much of a shooter, but he was having a pretty good series. And then at a key moment in the seventh game, he passed up a shot. And the best player on his team during the timeout went back up to him and got in his face and yelled, you got to shoot that. And you can understand why he didn't, because he's not someone who's considered a first-class shooter. But that's what you, if it's the right shot, and if this is what we do, then you get rejected and you keep trying and you find new good work. And what is your favorite word? Probably laughter or joke. One of those. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Charles Bach, author of the novel, Alice and Oliver. The interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The first draft music is produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.